Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am, of course, Matt Kennedy. And as we head into the second wave of the show, I like to think of it as the second wave. The, um, the last show that we recorded was a sort of catching you up to date type of thing where we addressed questions that we'd received over past shows. So we're back into something new and um, something novel. And I figured that um, while we've explained it a little bit, we haven't really talked in super detail about the history of this podcast. Um, and it sounds funny because, you know, this is like the 26th episode or so, but um, Pod Sequentialism, of course, did start as the podcast version of Pop Sequentialism. And Pop Sequentialism is a blog uh, that I maintained in connection with a series of comic book art exhibitions that uh, we traveled worldwide beginning in 2011. And um, because I'd set this thing up as a curation project, um, it really does connect back into my history in in buying and selling art. And there's a lot of press lately about the exorbitant amounts of money people are paying for um, very blue chip art. And you see a lot of advertising, especially in Los Angeles, where we've we've got um, the Broad Museum is here and. And we've also got LACMA and we've got uh, MOCA and we've got, you know, Norton Simon out in Pasadena. And there's, there's a ton of museums here. And people have been saying for years that L.A. is the new art hub that, um, you know, we've kind of wrestled that mantle from New York. Um, and there's um, there's good reason to agree with that. There's uh, definitely a, a lot of uh, people who would disagree with that. But what cannot be disagreed with is the amount of money that is being plopped down at auction, mainly by collectors um, in Los Angeles. And whether or not that translates into people who buy art in galleries in Los Angeles um, remains to be seen. And certainly we've got um, some, some major heavy hitters have opened up new spots downtown. Um, you've got the, uh, the new Schimmel space um, and you've got at Hauser and Worth and Schimmel um, now considered one of the most important new um, private art galleries in the world an extension of uh, a gallery conglomerate in Europe and the former um, curator uh, director at MOCA. So as all these things kind of congeal uh, here in LA, um, I went back and I looked at something I had written a few years ago and it was about collectors. And I thought it was important to bring up now because I really feel like that as we see in, in politics and we see in, in the markets, um, people make a lot of predictions, and, and often these predictions just don't come to pass. And there are inevit inevitabilities, but the art bubble bursting that people have been predicting for years sort of hasn't happened. And there's, uh, there's different ends of the spectrum. So there's the blue chip market where people are spending millions upon millions of dollars on, um, on artwork that is probably considered impenetrable or at least hard to appreciate by a lot of the general public 
because it's not figurative narrative work. Um, and that controversy picks up steam because people see the amount of money that's being spent and that causes people to get um, agitated, especially as they see that the economy isn't exactly growing. And so they get upset that people with a lot of money seem to be spending money on things that they perhaps would not have done so. Now, I realized kind of early on that my interest in comics and original art had grown out of a fascination with just fine art in general and from a very early age. And I started buying uh, comic book art and original artwork at the age of 12 and it became my career. But in organizing an exhibition of comic art as say opposed to an exhibition of pop art, the descriptions that are necessitated are quite lengthy. Number one, you have to familiarize uh, a buyer with why a character or an issue or an artist or a writer and often all of those people are important specifically to the item being sold, which would be one page from a published comic. And so the educational aspect of that means that the descriptions that I had to put together in the first exhibition, the first pop sequentialism exhibition, led to descriptions that were so long that I realized pretty quickly that I had an 80-page, um, you know, booklet that I that I had composed. And anybody who's written 80 pages accidentally, uh, when given the chance to publish, will. So uh, in that regard, comic book art is perhaps burdened with the most complex criteria for evaluation of any artistic media. And perhaps because of that, it's been difficult to attract fine art patrons into collecting that type of art, or it had been at least until we started kicking this type of thing off. And that to me has always been a little bit of madness. And I've always felt, and it's been reflected in the collections of people that buy art from me at La Luz de Zeus, the gallery that also co-sponsors the, the podcast with Meltdown Comics, that they are a demographic interested in comics. Uh, it might be underground comics. It might be more like the um, the comedic stuff than necessarily the superhero stuff. But there is a line there. And I've also felt that the benefit to figurative narrative work is that its aesthetic value doesn't hinge on what some people might consider nebulous criteria. Um, that any reasonable person can look at a well-rendered drawing or painting and conclude that a high degree of ability went into creating it. Now, whether or not they've been educated on the importance of composition or have any knowledge or inclination toward understanding allegory or symbolism, as human beings, they'll pick up on the fact that these other things make the work in question great. They may not be able to tell you why it's a masterpiece, but their appreciation of what elevates it beyond average is intrinsically embedded in human DNA. We as people are born with an understanding of such things. We recognize faces in inanimate objects because our eyes are trained by our brains to do so. Certain colors elicit certain responses. Shapes behind or incorporating the figure in the foreground are collected and appreciated based on our need to find them. You know, sometimes it's uh, consciously and sometimes it's subconsciously. But truly great works, and especially the works of antiquity, are hailed as such because they tap into all of those things. It's all that stimuli. So for me, how an abstract conceptual piece can be more legit than, say, a published illustration of modern mythology is worthy of discussion. And um, 
in a bit, I'm going to introduce uh, someone on the podcast that I think is uh, uniquely qualified to, to speak on these things. And uh, But before I do, I want to get a little bit more into the background of this because it's become apparent that a few people with a lot of money have a dog in this fight and they've decided that what is should be. And I'm not a hater. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of worthwhile and important contemporary art. And um, I have a, a, a fondness and appreciation for high concept work. But I've always felt that high concept should be matched by high craft so that if it's just an idea, there's not a lot to, um, to, to grow upon. There's not a lot to appreciate. And I'm not sure that a single idea has a lot of legs, so to speak, that will that be considered important? Never mind five years, 50 years, five minutes after the idea has been executed. That to be truly high concept, it has to function on a number of levels. And it ha it, it, to me at least, it should be of a degree of execution that um, inspires at least some degree of awe. So that whether or not the ideal behind the concept sells the work on its own, the technique involved in creating the work will do so. So I think that um, that, that might be a good place to introduce my guest. Oh. <laughs> that is Sean Burke. Sean Burke is a fine artist. Um, we've represented him at La Luz de Jesus. He's shown in exhibitions elsewhere in the United States and and in Europe, perhaps? Uh, per perhaps uh, just around the bend. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, Sean, you also, you instruct at Art Center College of Design. Yes. And you're, you're teaching foundational painting? Yeah. yeah. So that's inherently a figurative narrative type of work. Right. And when most people think fine art, that's probably what they think. Mm-hmm. You know, fine painting. If if you can paint like Rembrandt, you are an incredibly gifted person, and you deserve a claim. <laughs> well, so yeah, um, there there is kind of that uh, that consensus. You know, there's there's a lot of um, you know compliments that are kind of readily at hand for someone who's able to make the thing look like the thing. Right. It's a recognize. It's the recognizable nature of figurative work yeah you know like i explained that you know we recognize eyes we recognize faces um we're trained to look for things that look like us and that may be part of our um primal survival instinct right and as you were introducing the topic it came to mind that we um you know we develop very slowly right the mm -hmm. biological evolution is a very slow process yeah and uh, especially came, in humans yeah 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 and what came to mind was actually uh a a term, perhaps uh, a visual evolution or something, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, these um, these images that can resonate most strongly with us mm -hmm. are ones that kind of go back very far for us, right? So um, you know, you know whether it's you know however many like steps you want to take back in history. I mean, like you know, in the Renaissance where they're reviving antiquity, you know, they're touching on on these uh, very deep rooted principles that really affect a viewer very deeply mm -hmm. so you know in you know so you know by the time you get to like baroque and it's like sex and death and and you move on from there and it becomes then after that like maybe sensational mm -hmm. um 
the the core of it is is just a very like very deep rooted kind of emotion perhaps i mean mm-hmm. so so um beyond just the the technical uh capacity you know there's there's the uh, kind of emotive quality of of a work that can you know, really grip a viewer and and that i feel is is something worth striving for right right and aside from i and i think a, a personal journey for for painters is to create work that can impress oneself can impress one's peers and when it's finished you can kind of hang in the wall smile and know hey i made that <laughs> and and it's a battle i know a lot a lot of painters don't allow themselves that luxury of self appreciation and i think successful painters do mm-hmm. um and and because there's a recognition of what the marketplace also recognizes and the marketplace can mean different things it doesn't necessarily mean that it's just where things are bought and sold that currency isn't just cash currency can be appreciation it can be um recognition and so um if these things are are in the cards for an artist and they're able to gain accolades based on their use of technique and their subject and painting something that um that people respond to then in say 50 years ago um it would have been a pretty easy path to success and that in the post-war era that changed and um appreciation for the generation that had come before the post-war guys the abstract artists um and the contemporary with the post-war scene were people like jackson pollock and you have the creation of abstract expressionism and that's kind of held through that that's still what's being taught but this isn't a mystery the reason that this is still appreciated is because you know Pollock's patron, Peggy Guggenheim, pumped a lot of money into art schools. Yeah. And if you weren't following her line of history and appreciation, and she had a plan, I mean, and she was not alone. She had a couple of cohorts, um, including art critics at, you know, magazines like, uh, or newspapers like the New York Times, and um, even the people at Life Magazine who who um, kind of professed to not get Jackson Pollock and, and Chris and Tim Jack the Dripper, that she understood that that publicity was still good publicity. That mm-hmm. even if the public were outraged at the um, the thought that this was fine art, that that was good for business. And so if you were going to put forth this idea that the new American art form and with Europe in rubble at the end of World War II, uh, there wasn't really anybody to kind of fight for that, you know, that crown of, you know, kings of the new art world. And so what happens, she brings over a couple of those people, um, employs, gives a gallery to, um, to Champ. Didn't last long. Very short-lived sales gallery. Um, ahead of its time, perhaps. Um, but people weren't buying it. And so she saw that her mark was to give... Um, donations and grants to institutions that followed her line and so by the time you reach 1975 we'll say that and this is after pop art was still able to kind of float through pop art being recognizable being a um you know a visual a visually realistic medium 
mm-hmm. um, and uh, definitely figurative, if not narrative, um, the narrative being behind the work, perhaps, and not on the canvas, that by 1975, you find pretty much every important art school in the United States is now teaching you not to paint something that anybody can recognize. Right, that de-skilling. Yeah. yeah, and so that, you know, this this idea that we're going to teach people how to think, we're not going to teach people how to paint, starts to set in, and it changes the course of uh, what we're seeing at auction now and, and, and the prices that are being realized. And so I think as when you talk about collectors, and we're talking about blue chip collectors, the people that influence the market, people who have millions and millions of dollars and pay millions and millions of dollars um, for artwork, that um, they create a market that elevates pieces to a certain level and not unlike sumo wrestling once you pass a certain level once you attain yokozuna you can't fall below that and in the blue chip art world once you hit a certain point with a certain auction record even if other subsequent works fail to reach the opening hammer as has been the case with damien hurst with 85 percent i think at this point of all damien hurst pieces at auction failing to reach the opening hammer that um, it still doesn't hurt his position as one of the most successful living artists because his money's been made. And, you know, there's been accusations of collusion that he helped um, fraudulently create his market by um, colluding with collectors and auction houses to fix price on um, certain pieces, um, elevate the, the auction hammer price on some of his work. And once you get above... You know, once you get above a million, then you get above five million, then you get above 10 million, then you get above 20 million. Um, You know, what some people, and I leave this open for discussion and argument, consider to be um, the most important artwork of the 1990s. Um, And there have been books written about this um, and about the fact that this particular piece was selected as such is Damien Hirst's. formaldehyde shark and um yeah i recently saw an article about how those uh those formaldehyde animals were uh off gassing and leaking uh, toxic fumes now yes because i've always said having seen them in person they're very poorly made and um you know he got caught manipulating his own market uh nobody likes a cheater Mm -hmm. and yet uh gagoshin just took him back well yeah, you know, there's, um, I think, uh, conventions of, of some of these institutions that they're just going to kind of, uh, kind of roll right ahead with with their own ideas of, of, uh, you know, of what, what art is, and with that kind of label, you know, there's, um, there's, a, you know, a lot for, you know, the public to kind of, uh, to just chew on just with that. But with a, a label, you know, like like the word art, it I mean, it's it's pretty loaded, and so you know, there's there's plenty of um, you know of, of uh, contention. Dis- yeah, exactly. Yes, and discontentment, and and in kind of um, championing other terms to call you know different different uh, modes of image making different things, and so so I'm I'm very much uh, you know a proponent for for this uh, for this kitsch. Movement, right? I'm trying to think. The title of that work was something like The Impossibility of the Living to Comprehend the Concept of Death, I think is the name of that $12 million shark or whatever. Mm. And um, 
that the book, which is, you know, I think the title is the $12 million shark or whatever it sold for. And I can't remember what it originally sold for. Um, he's remade the piece a couple of times. He sold different versions of it to different people. I have heard, and I cannot verify that a certain um, narcotics kingpin paid more than double um, the original um, auction price of that work to have another one made. And I can understand the effect of walking into a drug kingpin's <laughs> office and seeing a gigantic shark in a tank. Yeah. That, um, you know, that that works, you know, from a, um, a logistical and, um, you know, symbol of power type of thing. Um, and I can understand someone like that paying a ridiculous amount of money as a way of saying, I have a ridiculous amount of money. I have so much money that I can afford to spend it on a dead shark in a tank. So your life means nothing to me type of thing. And I think that I, I don't want to be cynical, but I think that there is an aspect of that to the, you know, what I like to call the lazy rich, which are not people that, um, that made their own fortunes, but people who inherited a lot of money. And I, I, I bear no ill will to anybody just because they have money. I have several friends who were born into wealth and um, and they're incredibly productive and, and reasonable and wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And now I sound like Donald Trump. But um, that there is a whole class of um, kind of professional consumers that aren't employed and they have um, a nearly endless supply of what you might call, you know, fun money or stupid money. And their ability to show off by supporting a scene with purchases of absurd art at absurd prices. And we're not talking about that, that upper echelon. These are not kids buying $12 million paintings, but there are kids like that that are buying $30,000 paintings that look like, you know, someone pooped on a canvas and maybe laminated it and spread the feces around. And it's with that you know, or like someone took an entire box of paint and squeezed it all onto one canvas and it turns that really disgusting olive green, mm -hmm. that brownish green, it doesn't go black. But the, um, and then they just kind of made a mess with it and stuck it on a wall. And I've, I've seen these shows. I've seen these shows in prominent and respected galleries. And when I see these reviews by prominent, you know, fine art magazines, publications, whose job it is to know better, mm -hmm. and they give these glowing reviews, then you have to realize that that's part of the machine. Yeah. You know, and as someone who is constantly approached by art magazines to advertise in them because I run a gallery, I see the pay to play nature of it. You know, it's like, oh, you know, well, we're not sure that your magazine is really a good fit for us because you don't seem to really cover the type of art that we showcase. And they say, oh, well, if you advertise, you know, I can have a word with the editor. Now, these used to be like sacred separates. You know, th this was not a Venn diagram where there was any crossover. You had editorial and you had advertising and they were not, they did not converse. Uh, advertising could not influence editorial. And now it's the same person running both divisions at certain places or they're at least selling this idea that they have um, that type of access to the editor that your purchase of an ad will stimulate coverage in the magazine. And that's that to me is the death of journalism. And, you know, one can make the argument that since it's so inexpensive to publish, this already sounds archaic, to publish in color, <laughs> why do you need to write about the art? You know, what do you need to say when a picture tells a thousand words, says a thousand words? And online, it costs you nothing. So what needs to be said? 
You know, if, if the idea is to educate the public, just show them the work. Yeah. And where it becomes a system of doubt is that people with degrees from the same institutions, <laughs> critics, right? Um, the same institutions that the artists they're criticizing. And yeah. it's like, is it personal? Well, I don't know. It becomes kind of a bandwagon, right? And, yeah. And that uh, that fun money spending, I think, is very purposefully absurd. Right? Yeah. And yeah. It's, and it's, you know, it's kind of... It's like you know, buying an ugly suit and wearing it to the biggest party in town. Yeah. And that suit being $20,000. And it's kind of it's kind of funny for its absurdity, but it's actually pretty dangerous and... and um, you the know, influence of, you know... Yeah, so it's very, it's very Le misleading. Enfant terrible. And so I'm, I'm always very, uh, you know, encouraged to, you know, to hear about, you know, whenever someone like goes to a museum and they like to see a, a, a work hanging there, you know, it's, it's already, it's in, it's in, it's already set aside at a place for someone to go and just look at. No one's trying to, trying to sell it to you or anything right. like that. And so, you know, some, some of those works will resonate very strongly with, with visitors of, of museums and those, you know. Are those are institutions. Timeless. Yeah, those are institutions. And a different, yeah. And I mean, most museums, with the exception of the last few years, we'll say, most um, lauded museums have been around for centuries mm -hmm. or for a really, really long time. Clearly not your uh, contemporary art museums, although those contemporary art museums are now turning 40. Yeah. So that, um, and when we say contemporary, we're speaking about art of our time. And so which kind of brings you back to the, the aspect of the collectors, that the collectors who are buying this work are buying the art of their time. Mm -hmm. And so people put together collections of contemporary art, whether it's Jay-Z and Beyonce um, spending money on Maria Abramovic performance pieces and the type of stuff that I think most people scratch their head about, well, how do you make money on that? How do you sell a performance? How do you sell, you know, video art? Like the, these are become they're getting a lot of press now mm -hmm. and it they're not super old mediums but they've been around you know you think of david holzman's diary you're talking about video art from the 1960s um the film work of chantelle ackerman 50s and 60s um and up until her death recently and um and that type of work for a long time you know people who lived in los angeles and had worked around the film industry saw video art as just like a joke mm -hmm. You know, that it was a low production value, poorly made video, that it didn't have a narrative and therefore it must be art because no one would watch it otherwise. So you need a degree from, you know, Cal Arts or Occidental College and all of a sudden this badly shot thing becomes, you know, a, a fascinating piece of, uh, of um, you know, the culture. But that to a bigger degree what we're looking at is an appreciation of more recent and modern art forms. Mm -hmm. And I, I have no quarrel with that at all. And I honestly don't even have a quarrel with someone with billions of dollars spending hundreds of millions of dollars on something that I think is garbage. But, um, well, you know, yeah, patronage has always been important in supporting, uh, in painting, you know? Yeah. Um, it, you know, in, you know, Venice was a very, you know, luxurious city and <laughs> the, the birthplace of the bank. <laughs> exactly. Banco. Right. And, yep. Um, so that, like, that has always been very important, but there has always also been a distinction between court painters and those who are not chained to the court. Right. And, um, so regardless of institutions, there's always going to be those who kind of, um, kind of hold true to whatever compass they have in hand. Mm -hmm. and those who might, you know, seek to, 
uh, be of their time and to be, you know, uh, to be the Van Dyke, not the Rembrandt. And, right. And there's, so there's a, are important distinctions. And, well, the important distinction, of course, is that Rembrandt didn't die poor. <laughs> uh, Rembrandt did have patrons. and But there's this notion, too, and I, I heard somebody say this a while back, and I think it's this is more common perhaps in um, in the dark art movement where there are people who um, dark art would be anything from perhaps H.R. Giger to David Stupakis, maybe um, you know, Chet Zar, maybe even Christopher Ulrich that um, the work is of a death centric mm-hmm. or a dirgy kind of um, subject matter. And, I get. I would hear this a lot, you know, in in galleries that specialize in that. I hear the patrons say this that, like, you know, you know, art should be shocking. You know, that real art, you know, shouldn't satisfy the status quo. And it's like, well, do you like Caravaggio? <laughs> you know, Caravaggio yeah. painted for the church. You know, his main patron was the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, most of the really fine art that inspired most of the non. Um, you know, abstract work was paid for by wealthy institutions and was not considered in any way shocking in its day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, using nudity and using uh, different types of models, um, maybe perhaps because the access of, you know, who's going to pose for a painter at that point in time, perhaps the lowest job you could have, you know, one step below the guy who cleaned the cage at the zoo, <laughs> if zoos were around yet at that point. But um, that it was not considered a respectable um, livelihood. And as ability became recognized by major institutions, their patronage sent the message to the general public that this was a worthwhile. Yeah. Um, it became kind of this, this courtly. I mean, the, like there was kind of the, uh, that kind of up-jumped yeah. term. You know, you know, Velasquez, at, at the, I think it was the Spanish court, uh, he had had to oversee the sweeping of the court. I don't know that he had to do it himself, but he had to oversee it. And when so his assistant swept a lot of court, yeah, adds adds some context to when he paints uh, Las Meninas, where he's more important. He's the most important figure mm. in the painting, and the king is back in this mirror or whatever. And that's right. where psychology comes into play. Yeah. You know, years before right. we we establish a name for psychology, that um that. And one of the things, you know, we always say to artists who are submitting work and if it's something that doesn't work and, you know, I try and be, I try to not tear someone to pieces. I, I think that if they've sent in their work, it's it's not my job to respond necessarily, but I generally do. And I will do so graciously if I can. Um, and I, I may give advice and say, well, you may want to go to a museum and study the composition on the really classic pieces that composition is really hard to learn if you're not being taught composition. Yeah. Some people have inherently great composition and, and fine. Some people have, a, uh, you know, they can play by ear, you know, musically. Um, some people look at, you know, an equation and, and they see those mathematical elements the way that Mozart saw music. Mm-hmm. But basically that art is something you train for and if you're going to get better, you need to learn and you need to have peer, a peer group and you need to experience critiques. And that's why art school is valuable to an extent, to the extent that it is valuable, is that it offers these things. What you pay for your education can offset that value. Sure. Um, but that if you don't have any kind of 
training in composition, the work just falls apart, even if it's incredibly well painted. That I've always said, it's easier to teach somebody with good composition how to paint mm -hmm. than it is to teach a good painter composition. Yeah, it's fundamental, absolutely. So this guy's sneaking himself ahead of the king, amazed, lucky, <laughs> you know, that the court jester didn't pull him aside and say, I see what you're doing. Yeah, there's, there's some, you know, beautiful, um, you know, Beautiful, beautiful tricks. I don't know how else to put it. Really, that mm -hmm. that you know happened in some of these historical paintings. Color, that, yeah. That, that you know that becomes important. But I think you know paramount to composition is, is value. Um, but I don't know that we need to get into all all of uh, those technicalities. Mm -hmm. But um, to so actually to, to get back to a, a point you brought up about uh, people buying works that are distinct for their time mm -hmm. is I think very a very important uh, aspect of what's going on now and what kind of has gone on historically. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I find it to be, you know, some, somewhat egocentric. It's incredibly egocentric. Right? It, it's, it's, it says, I want the best right now. Yeah. And so I want, you know, this steak from Alexander's, <laughs> I want this Kobe beef that was massaged by hand that costs, you know, Five hundred dollars for four ounces or something, yeah. you know, and I want to wash it down with you know a nineteen fifty seven Bordeaux or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, or, or Lafitte or something, and that's what they're doing with contemporary art. Only most of the collectors of contemporary art don't have an art education background, mm -hmm. so they're buying what auction has told them are important works. Most of the important collections of contemporary art, whether it's Eli Brode, Eli and Edith Brode, or the Resnicks, or what have you, not too many of these people are buying works from artists in a studio for 500 bucks mm -hmm. and watching it grow to 5 million. They're asking auctioneers and gallerists at already blue chip galleries, okay, who are you showing next year? You know, who should we be collecting right now? Can we get in now? Can we get in on the ground floor of this already established artist? Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's like Futures Wine and everything yeah. like that. Um, you know, I had a student ask me about, about, um, about Audrey Nerdrum's paintings, why, you know, why they look so old mm -hmm. and, um, you know, how is it different? And he was very Audrey Nerdrum being yeah. one of the most important contemporary artists who works in a figurative narrative fashion. Yeah. And yeah. along with John Curran, one of the, the, the other artists who brought back figurative painting, mm -hmm. that it was gone. You right. know, at the blue chip level, figurative work was gone for decades. Yeah. And the success of Audrey Nerdrum and John Curran um, respectively, and then to a lesser degree, someone like Mark Ryden um, helped inspire that new breed of collectors to get back into buying people with actual painting chops. Yeah. And you, of course, went and actually stayed with Odd Nerdrum, were invited mm -hmm. to go and stay with him, and he offered you a chance to study with him indefinitely. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a wonderful family, a beautiful people, mm -hmm. like, uh, thoroughly. And um, the, yeah, the point I was I wanted to, to make actually about about uh, you know about his his paintings that seemed so old to one student was mm -hmm. was that they um, <clears throat> oh, oh shit well <laughs> we'll cut that yeah <clears throat> um, complete fucking brain fart but 
So, so the, the the student had asked, you know, why why Audner's paintings had had seemed so old, and what was distinctive about his work against old masters, right? Mm-hmm. And and what what I had pointed out to the student was that it was it was very kind of egotistical, egocentric to of himself to need to um, have such distinctiveness amongst you know amongst his his peers. I mean, mm-hmm. like there's such an emphasis on originality and uniqueness that it kind of seems to inflate a lot of heads. And, and that's part of, I think, the, the art school curriculums that kind of across the board. Right. And so I think that the, greatest, the great success of Odd Nerdrum is just to, to stick with uh, one's own heart and to, to see that through regardless how it goes and, and that, you know, he's done what he's done and accomplished what he's accomplished in seeking, like, you know his own ends for for image making for painting mm-hmm. is is kind of the most uh, kind of resounding su- success that any painter could could want. Well, one thing that he has sort of changed um, from the capacity of the old masters is that Audnerdom runs a studio, mm-hmm. and there are painters that perhaps help him paint. Yeah, well, well, you not know, to the not, extent not, not that Jeff Koons, right? But like uh, just preparing canvases, right? You know, but. And I can completely understand, like you know, there, there's a, just such a such a joy in the actual painting that right. if you can remove like all of the work that goes in before, yeah. you know, then stretching and everything great. else, yeah. 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 But um, my point being with with Odd is that his students get to paint their own work mm-hmm. and they get to put their own name on it, mm-hmm. and that didn't exist. <laughs> and when you look at um, you know, uh, the great allegory paintings at the Louvre mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the huge pieces and they're all attributed to one painter. I, I, I'm, I'm completely losing. Well, well, they've got like a lar- large Varanese. They've got a wall of, of uh, Titians that, but that are kind of very much, Overlooked because they're in the same room. As well, this is a huge room, and it's just all allegory paintings by. Yeah, well, yeah, in the in that one gallery with where we have the Mona Lisa and a wall of Titians, uh, the most beautiful Titians, and then there's this giant uh, Veronese, um, and then there's like a mile and a half long gallery of like Italian works that you know that has like you know Leonardo, Raphael, uh, Lutti, and Correggio, and a whole bunch of others. But what painter are we thinking of? Point being is, <laughs> you know, there like when when Caravaggio say comes onto the scene, there are then later people who who take what he does and work with it. Like Rembrandt had later, you know, been looking at at that chiaroscuro effect of Caravaggio, right? And many paint many paintings that were once attributed to Rembrandt are now being kind of sectioned out oh, as yeah. we are finding out who his students were. And recognizing uh, in their technique within that Rembrandt house style yeah. that oh this is so and so and that is so and so. Um, I saw a documentary recently where there was like this misattributed Rembrandt that they were analyzing. I was like, that's very clearly not <laughs> Rembrandt. Yeah, certainly pupil or school out or whatever. And now now we know that. And um, you know, for years a lot of these things were all just kind of thrown together. Um, Italian painter name begins with a B. Perhaps one of the greatest painters of all time. Well, Italy, I mean, like, oh, shit. Uh, I mean, Bellini, I love. Um, 
I can't think of his name. Yeah, it's killing Giovanni me. and Jacopo Bellini. Um, they, they come to mind first, but... Uh, no, not Baldini. Oh, um, Botticelli. You know, it's, I'm not thinking Botticelli either. Anyways, I'm going to have to give up the ghost. But um, would have been a great example. But the, um, when you see just the volume of work mm-hmm. and the sizes of these paintings that the idea that one person would have painted them is just kind of ridiculous. And we know that he had assistants. Oh, well, Rubens. Rubens, yes. Pa- Peter Paul Rubens, yeah. yes, Flemish. And so um, the there were a ton of people making Rubens paintings. <laughs> there was like an industry. Yeah, he kind of had his his in, uh, his his studio school industry thing going on. And He's like the Jeff Koons of his time. Which I think he had cited, you know, that Rubens had assistants. And, you know, like there, you know, there's there are all these gradients throughout history. It's not that yesteryear was some, some you know, um, you know, existed in some vacuum. There mm-hmm. was always, you know, gradients of patronage, whether like court painter are free from that and and whether, you know, studio assistants or not. But like, and I don't I don't discount those things. Sure, I don't I don't sure. think I think the author of the work is the author of the work. Exactly. It's like the the work's quality is going to speak for itself, whether, you know, and that tends to be, you know, when whichever painter had put the most of themselves into it. I mean, like, you know, how like Leonardo would, you know, slowly toil over over his, you know, uh, you know, shorter uh, orv, if that's how you pronounce it. Oeuvre. There, thank you. Yeah. It, that, his body of work, right? Um, or, you know, Rembrandt, like, trying to kind of really put all that all that feeling and weight into into like the Jewish bride, for example, or the, or the falconer. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's a lot that goes into a work and I think that is paramount I and mean, that carries through to the viewer. And, you know, I think that's what um, is worth carrying on today. I mean, it, it doesn't matter that, you know, we've got computers now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that, you know, there's all this. You, you know, can still paint with pixels. Exactly. You got all this tech, whatever. It's, it's convenient. Yeah. It's great. That, um, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, care can't be put into an image. And if, you know, images are going to carry a heavy price tag, then, you know, maybe they should be, you know, assessed, you know, a bit more unbiased, you know, a little bit more um, disconnected from some of the institutional biases. Well, this is where the bummer comes in. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, there was a Botticelli. It was one of the four Madonna and Child paintings that Botticelli did. Mm-hmm. That sold at auction in 2012, I think it was, for $4.7 million. Mm-hmm. Now we can scoff at that. I mean, if it was 1960 and it sold for $4.7 million, that would be an impressive amount of money. In 2012, that's like half a mansion in Beverly Hills. And that same auction, a Jackson Pollock painting, mm-hmm sold supposedly and then it, it didn't turn out to be the case but it had been announced that a piece had sold for 120 million dollars you know in in this concept of visual evolution i think we have a branch of two di- very distinct different species and mm-hmm. they you know like it, there doesn't have to be a domination of one or, or the other um but it is surprising yeah but what what that speaks to again is not necessarily that people don't appreciate the paintings of antiquity, I think that they do. And I think that it's sort of inbred in art education that the masterpieces of a certain era are clearly masterpieces and that after that era, 
and maybe people are, will even allow Picasso in there. Mm-hmm. You know, as as we as we get further away from the era in which he was painting, that um, and then all of a sudden the art world changed for them, and there becomes this disconnection between the public their degree of art comprehension, the amount of education being pushed in that direction, and then the academics and um, what they're saying are very important pieces. And then again, because contemporary collectors have always been the largest supporters of art throughout history, that people collecting contemporary now are just fighting in the same pool Mm -hmm. with each other. You know, that the major collectors push up the prices on works that would be criticized for not being of the same technical um, ability. Ability is the wrong word. Uh, Of the same degree of technique um, in a realistic way. Mm -hmm. Although, honestly, you know, it's not like they're photorealistic paintings and, and there's not a lot that's incredibly interesting about photorealism unless there's a trick to it that um, it's painterly, it's Mm -hmm. clearly painted, you can see the line stroke and there's something to be respected about that. That that that's being perhaps not as collected because the people who painted them were dead before the people who are collecting them were born. And so you do see, I think, you know, some of Kehinde Wiley's paintings are probably the same price of that, that Botticelli. Kehinde Wiley is, you know, still painting, still actively painting. Mm -hmm. When... um, Richter, uh, painting sold for, I think, $37 million back in 2013, um, broke the record for the highest price paid for a living artist's work. But, I mean, numbers are important to people. And so that's where the disconnection is. That outrage over that amount of money being paid for a painting that some people may look at and say it's a painting of nothing – uh, that artist is still alive. He's still producing work of that quality in that size. Uh, nebulously, it weighs the same. Right. It's got the same amount of effort in it. That why is that piece that much? That piece is that much because a few people have decided that that painting is worth that much. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, the numbers are meaningless. I mean, but so are the numbers on money. Is <laughs> what I'm talking about. Actually. Yeah, 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 and. You know, imagine, you know, a millennia In from God now, we trust. Right? After some sci-fi Armageddon mm-hmm. happens, comes and goes, and perhaps, you know, uh, whoever else might excavate the remains of some long-gone uh, civilization mm-hmm. and say they unearth, you know, a Damien Hirst, you know, shark in a tank, uh, surely, I mean, whatever. That ain't going to survive any uh, apocalypse. Clearly, but um, hypothetically, yes. s- suspend that for a second, mm-hmm. right? Find that, and then this like Hellenistic bronze of a this seated boxer I had seen it at the Getty, you know, some months ago, mm-hmm. and um, when that was was unearthed, that that bronze, this of this seated boxer, he's like peering over his shoulder, like looking at like at at who's over there, and yeah. when he's dug up out of the earth, the people that found him were like, holy shit, look at this human under. I don't know if we curse on the our podcast. Yeah, it's fine, but. Uh, we, they would have been surprised at finding, you know, this this buried human and with all this uh, emotion like carved into the face, mm-hmm. and, you know, battered and bruised as as this uh, boxer from antiquity. You know, 
is that going to speak to you know a little bit more about our about a culture than you know an, an animal encased that had a label and then had a very you know it had, it had a context you know i'm not you know um disregarding you know all the all the theory behind it but you know, there is that requisite MFA, you know, like yeah. thesis reading to, it's to get not, into it. It's not what's on the wall. It's it's what's on the piece of paper next to that thing on the wall. Yeah, yeah. That um, that the comprehension required to appreciate um, a lot of, of fine art um, is reliant upon a system that propagates that particular type of art. Um, you can say that about certain types of music. You know that, um, hey, I can listen to grindcore for hours, but someone may walk into a room while I'm listening to grindcore and think, what is that noise he's listening to? And they may think it's all exactly the same and I can hear the subtleties because I'm trained, you know, via my exposure to it at the length of time um, to understanding these 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 idiosyncrasies, um, whether tonal or beat or or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know people said that of jazz. That people were outraged when jazz was created. Like, what is that noise? And um, you know now it's you know considered one of the true American art form. That all of these have context, and where people where people's outrage begins and ends is generally related to a value that they don't understand attributed to whatever the object is, whatever the thing is. Right. And what I realized, and not just about collectors, and when I started this this journey with, you know, pop sequentialism and now pod sequentialism, is that figurative work is a great investment. Now, when you look at old paintings, that those numbers were on the rise and they halted and there have been a few pieces that have been sold as people hit desperate times. And generally when those people have desperate times, the people who would buy those from them are also having desperate times. It's usually at the end of a bubble economy that, that these things exchange hands. Um, and we're not seeing that now we're seeing people sell pieces to reinvest into other pieces. But I looked back across a 20-year swath of original comic book art sales and um, published illustration work. And here's some numbers that I, that I came up with. And this was some very daunting research, and this is all reality-based, um, that even journeyman pencilers and illustrators in comics, not the stars, so, and we're talking like of, of 1970s comic book art, Mm-hmm. that in 1994 you could buy them for 5 to $15 a page if you bought one. And if you bought multiples, you could get them for as little as 2 to $3 a page. Stacks. Mm-hmm. You could buy stacks of original comic book art. And maybe you weren't going to get like a juicy splash page of your favorite hero, but you're going to get, you know, a, a well-rendered um, storytelling page from a comic that is now considered a classic, you know, from the Bronze Age, we'll say. So if you eliminate people like Neil Adams or John Byrne, whose work was always priced ahead and is now incredibly valuable, um, we can get to that in a second. Um, You look at people like Sal Buscema 
or Jim Aparo, you know, a lesser extent, someone like Dave Cochran, because he spent most of his career on a very hot title with the X-Men. But even like what were considered throwaway pages in those days, you'd see these pages, five to 10 bucks a pop, Phantom Stranger, Marvel 2-in-1, Brave and the Bold, Adventure Comics, Defender pages. Now, you could pick these up for a sawbuck, and at minimum, they have increased 15 times in value over 20 years. And the cheapest I could find, a Jim Apparel Bronze Age page of any stripe, and we're talking pages that don't even have the hero in the title of the comic on them, they were $1,100 or more. That's a 20-year curve of something going from being $5 to $1,100. Now, percentage-wise, you will never get that return on quote-unquote fine art. It just does not happen. It's, it's anathema. It's so it's, – it's not even just rare. It has never happened. Nobody has bought a contemporary art painting for an amount and have it having seen it increase that many times so but when you're talking about investment art Mm -hmm. you're talking about art that starts well you know 10 years ago you'd say it was ten thousand dollars now maybe it's twenty thousand dollars that that's the the lowest threshold for something to be considered investment art but for the layperson if they want to have stuff that they want to see on their walls and if they respond to the history and the um emotional pull of sequential art Mm -hmm. then their collection is virtually guaranteed to increase in value in a mere 20 years and not just double, not just triple, but you're talking about like a minimum of a five-time increase on the value of these lesser-known pages. Now, the prices that people would pay, and, and of course the market has changed because the same disease that afflicts blue chip collectors and like, I want the best Mm -hmm. and I'm going to pay for it has also filtered down into um, collectors of of comic book art. And maybe it's that people who were blue chip collectors of regular art decided that they wanted to start dabbling in less expensive stuff, but that really great peak pages start off very expensive immediately. And then the rest of the pages in that book, not so much. And so if, if you study that metric, those pages that may be considered throwaway pages now become exceptionally valuable when that artist goes on to establish a, a massive career, goes on to do other things. Um, when that comic that it's from is viewed through a, a lens of history and appreciation that elevates it beyond the norm, that these are all factors that uniquely affect published art. Mm-hmm. Work created within at a certain magazine, like for instance, if you were hired to illustrate The Believer, you know, Charles Burns' comic book pages were not very expensive, and there weren't a lot of them, and he's an underground artist, so, you know, the modern underground comics um, always had a, a different, more sophisticated collector base, and those prices appreciated even better than superhero comics. Mm-hmm. But once he started illustrating for The Believer, which is, you know, the the signature publication of the... um you know, a, a publishing empire, McSweeney's, that um, it increased the price of everything. You know, when Owen Smith started selling his paintings to Rolling Stone, that pushed him up noticeably. And then when he started doing the covers of The New Yorker, his prices went up, you know, exponentially. 
Mm-hmm. And that is because people who read publications have an instant connection to something that lays around on their bedside table, on their coffee table, that they refer to. People don't tend to throw magazines away quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they're not collectible, you know, nobody reads back pages of back issues of variety. They're not collectible. They're worth nothing. But you walk into an office in the entertainment business and there's stacks of old varieties in the office. You know, it, it's um, it, people did it with National Geographic. Those magazines are valueless. There are so many printed. And now, of course, you know, and the degree of decrepitude on old, old um, magazines uh, appreciates, you know, silverfish, insects, uh, rot, everything. The, the things that they are subject to as opposed to something more collectible instantly like a comic book means that they have almost no resale value and yet people still have maybe maybe the average person who subscribes to National Geographic has 55 pounds of that magazine sitting in a corner someplace. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I, I, I think that very much uh, speaks to the, the care that goes into comic books it, when people have enough of appreciation to you know, want to collect the original pages mm-hmm. and you know and in that way you know like it's a very accessible way to keep all of these you know stories alive and um you know what whether they're you know n- new or old or whatever mm-hmm. and and certainly it's brought in painters you know that people yeah. that wouldn't have necessarily been thought of as sequential artists have brought in painting they brought in the techniques that we think of as classical um antiquity styles and you you know whether it's Kent Williams or John J. Muth or um, you know even more modern people, Steve Rude was painting his comics, and that creates an instant nostalgia. Comics are an instant nostalgia that they speak to a bygone era because they're telling stories about characters that have been around for decades. Yeah. Um, that every entry point is a dip into the stream of the history of that character, and so where you differentiate is by the author and the artist and that just makes it better. Yeah, I think yeah, the um that sentimentality that uh that really goes I think a long way. Mm-hmm. But again, it speaks to authorship and I think that that these are valuable things. I don't think anybody would say that John Milton because he didn't personally handwrite out his own notes for Paradise Lost was not the author of that work and so I think it's unfair to say that the person who was the main driving force behind any creative product uh, project um, isn't necessarily the author of that even if he has other people assisting. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly there still seems to be a greater appreciation um, by the general public for art that seems to have been created by a single person as opposed to a team unless there's an openness about the team being presented as a team, as a collective, you know, as a, a organization. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's when there seems to be a shyness about the fact that some painters have assistance that the public gets their accusatory finger out and starts pointing. And I think that that conversation misses the point about why the work is valid in the first place, right. that it's either valid or it isn't. And so the way that it's created can either add to um, the enjoyment of it um, and, and I guess perhaps subtract from it if, you, if your frame is that you believe that it must be a singular work from a single person. Yeah, I think it's, it's important that a work has to stand on its own and... Um 
you know what, what's that saying you know about about batman and gotham about having having to uh like gotham gets the hero that it uh deserve or that it they don't get the one that they want want to get the hero they deserve yeah yeah. yeah and i think that kind of could be analogous to you know what is happening in in the realm of fine art versus what is a bit more accessible and enjoyable to the general public but what the general public heal hears instead of that particular epithet is jingle bells batman smells <laughs> robin laid an egg and so i guess that's probably where we'll stop with this one so again i want to thank uh sean burke for coming on the program and i want to give you an opportunity to shout out some some websites some instagrams and that type of thing oh sure yeah so on instagram sean burke spell it s-h-a-u-n-b-e-r-k-e and um yeah been busy painting away themes of mythology i'll have uh I have a show out of state uh, in Colorado next month and uh, following month yeah, here in Los Angeles. Yep, June at the Art Gathering LA. And uh, yeah, th- yeah. Oh, uh, recently, actually, I hadn't I hadn't um, put it out on any social media, but I had got a, a painting, you know, that Death Crush painting, mm-hmm. uh, Best in Show at the Westlake Village Art Guild. So I was very, very encouraged by by that. Excellent. It could be kind of. Uh, <laughs> and helping to train the next generation of painters at Art Center. Always. No small feat. Well, again, you've been listening to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, and I hope to speak to you again.